You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how the State of the Union address has changed in its 233 years, plus the extinct versions of SARS-CoV-2 that are still circulating among some animals. And donate to the San Antonio Zoo and they'll name a cockroach after your ex. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Tonight here in the U.S. is the annual State of the Union, an occasion when the sitting president gives a televised address before Congress outlining their recent accomplishments and priorities for the coming year. And like many federal traditions, it has its origins in the earliest days of our government and in the Constitution, but it has changed a lot over the years. For one thing, even though George Washington gave a spoken address to Congress within his first year as president, for 112 years, the State of the Union was only written, not spoken. That's because after 12 years of Washington and then John Adams giving oral addresses, Thomas Jefferson decided to mix it up and simply write the address down. According to Vox, Jefferson said this was to save time for the legislators, reduce the pressure on them to come up with a response, and perhaps to further separate the practices of the fledgling U.S. government from that of a monarchy. Some felt that an oral address from the president was too reminiscent of a monarch's speech from their throne at the opening of Parliament, according to historian Daniel Walker Howe. But Vox points to an article from former Stanford University President Gerhard Kasper, who argued that Jefferson might have opted for a written message because he was a terribly insecure public speaker, writing, quote, His first inaugural address was delivered at such a whisper that most in attendance could not hear a word he said, end quote. Now, while his other reasonings may have been solid, they conveniently aligned with his, quote, self-interested desire to avoid public speaking, end quote. But was that allowed? Could Jefferson just change tradition? Well, the practice in itself, as I said, is rooted in the Constitution. And here is what it says in Article 2, Section 3, quote, The President shall, from time to time, give to the Congress information of the State of the Union, and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. End quote. Nothing about that information being written or spoken, or about how frequently it must be given, just from time to time. But George Washington started the annual tradition right away, giving a speech in January 1790 and another one at the end of that year. He would, as such, establish the tradition of doing the State of the Union towards the end of the year, usually in December or November. It didn't become a January tradition until the 20th Amendment moved the start of Congress from March to January in 1933. And it wasn't actually called the State of the Union originally, despite that phrasing appearing in the Constitution. For years, it was simply referred to as the Annual Message. 
And that didn't change until 1942. Franklin Roosevelt was the first one to start informally referring to it as the State of the Union, a name that caught on enough for Harry Truman to officially rename it the State of the Union a few years later. But going back to Thomas Jefferson's radical change of writing the annual message instead of speaking it, that wasn't just a Jefferson thing. It stuck for over a century. Quoting Vox, But a young political scientist by the name of Woodrow Wilson wasn't convinced. Wilson had long been interested in how presidential rhetoric could more effectively be used. And in 1889, Wilson wrote that Jefferson should never have made the switch, since an oral presidential message could have allowed a more public and responsible interchange of opinion between the executive and Congress. When Wilson himself became president in 1913, he had the opportunity to put his ideas into action. As a special session of Congress was about to begin that April, Wilson decided that he'd address them personally to promote his agenda. The announcement stunned official Washington, Robert Craig wrote in a book on Wilson. Craig writes that a contemporary press account portrayed Congress as astonished, and that even members of Wilson's cabinet doubted the wisdom of the move. End quote. But it worked. The speech went over well, and that speech wasn't technically an annual message, but when it was time to deliver the annual message, Wilson delivered that orally as well. It wasn't enough to permanently resurrect the spoken annual address, however. Wilson would deliver a few more oral addresses, but his two final annual messages were written due to his ill health, and then subsequent presidents stuck to written addresses as well. What would really change matters was television. Franklin Roosevelt, who helped change the name of the address to the State of the Union, was also able to make the spoken version finally stick, with an assist from turning the affair into a public broadcast. With everyday citizens all around the country able to tune in, presidents would have felt more obligated to keep them in the loop and keep up their tradition. And like so much else in electoral politics and our national government, this new technology shifted many elements of the long-held tradition. One of the big shifts came in 1982, when Ronald Reagan invited the very first guests who were incorporated into the speech. He invited Congressional Budget Office employee Lenny Skutnik, who had recently jumped into the Potomac River to rescue people after a plane crashed into Washington, D.C.'s 14th Street Bridge. He was honored by President Reagan, and the TV cut to a shot of him on screen. Such cuts to special guests whose achievements or hardships help illustrate a point made in the speech have become commonplace, and political pundits sometimes call those individuals Skutniks. To quote reporter Jeff Greenfield in Vox, a Skutnik is a human prop used by a speaker to make a political point. End quote. And now that millions of people can watch the State of the Union on TV each year, as opposed to only those who are in person in Congress or who got a chance to read the written message, the address is typically billed as an influential and significant opportunity for the sitting president. But in reality, they don't often have much of an impact on public sentiment. Sometimes they don't even get the full attention of the TV networks. In 1997, as Bill Clinton was wrapping up his speech, the networks all cut over to a live feed from the courtroom of the O.J. Simpson trial, where the jury was about to deliver the verdict. 
Apparently, each network had been weighing different solutions to this matchup. Some even considered a split screen of the two events, while others planned to announce the verdict using on-screen graphics while keeping the video and audio on the president. Quoting a 1997 article from the New York Times, But in what Bill Wheatley, executive vice president of NBC News, called an incredible juxtaposition, the verdict in a case that has helped sharply define the nation's racial divide was announced nearly at the same moment that the president was ending his speech, paradoxically with a celebration of America's racial diversity, end quote. The networks had just enough time to show the verdict before switching back to the Republican response, which just so happened that year to be given by a black congressman and former football star, J.C. Watts. A lot lined up that year. But even though the networks insisted they were never going to boot the State of the Union for the O.J. Simpson trial, and even though there's a decent amount of hype put on the address, they don't actually tend to move the needle on anything. There are some notable exceptions, however. One was back when it was still a written annual message and not a spoken State of the Union address, quoting Vox. Back in December 1823, President James Monroe used his seventh annual message to announce that American continents were not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any European powers. This, of course, became known as the Monroe Doctrine and became a cornerstone of American foreign policy for centuries. End quote. And, of course, there are standout moments in recent history that we all remember. George W. Bush's Axis of Evil speech in 2002, Nancy Pelosi ripping up the text of Donald Trump's speech in 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg falling asleep during Barack Obama's address in 2015, and later revealing to the media that she, quote, wasn't 100% sober. Last year was the first time that the president was ever flanked by two women when Vice President Kamala Harris and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi sat behind President Joe Biden. That turned out to be a one-off, as this year Kevin McCarthy will take the spot reserved for House Speaker, but hey, there's always hope for the future. Personally, I hope that the State of the Union this year will be utterly boring. There were a few outbursts from the MAGA block last year, a contingent that has only grown in numbers and bluster. My hope is that we won't see more where that came from, but I am not holding my breath. I will say that I would love to see a bit more bluntness. In my opinion, nothing beats Gerald Ford's opening remarks in 1975 when he said, quote, The State of the Union is not good. I wouldn't have entirely agreed with his reasons for that, and, you know, generally I am an optimist, but sometimes it's just refreshing to hear someone call it as they see it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. For over a year now, when people talk about COVID 19, they mostly bring up Omicron, or recently maybe XBB 1.5. But whatever happened to Delta? 
I mean, heck, remember Alpha and Gamma? They barely got their new Greek names before they were shunted from the headlines as the next COVID variant reared its ugly head. Well, in some parts of North America, these old COVID variants, it turns out, are still lurking. But don't worry, it's not in humans. Rather, in white-tailed deer. Alpha, Gamma, and Delta are still circulating among white-tailed deer and a few other animal populations. A new study published last week in the journal Proceedings of the National Academies of Science studied over 5,000 samples of lymph tissue from white-tailed deer from New York, samples that had been collected as part of an investigation on chronic wasting disease in that population. But using those samples, they were able to identify substantial genetic changes from the versions of the variants that affected humans. Such changes indicate SARS-CoV-2 has been spreading and mutating over time within that population. It's not just a one-off event. Virologist Diego Dale calls it, quote, a new wildlife reservoir for SARS-CoV-2 in North America, end quote. And quoting from Science Alert, based on the time that the samples were gathered, it seems likely that the virus is able to circulate in deer for months after its last detection in people. It's possible that these animals are acting as long-term reservoirs for SARS-CoV-2 variants. These mutations potentially make it easier for SARS-CoV-2 to pass to other animals and perhaps even back to humans. End quote. That is a big if, though. There's only been one reported case of a deer passing COVID-19 to a person, even though it does spread from deer to deer quite easily. But we are still more likely to catch it from fellow humans. The fact that SARS-CoV-2 kind of has its own lineage within the white-tailed deer population is fascinating, but it doesn't seem like there's any reason to be overly concerned for now. I think I may have mentioned this in the past, but it is so good it's worth reminding people about every year. For Valentine's Day, the San Antonio Zoo in Texas is once again inviting people to donate 5 10 or $25 to have a cockroach named after their ex and fed to an animal at the zoo. Donations will support the zoo's vision of securing a future for wildlife, and you can actually choose between a roach, a rodent, or some veggies to be named after your ex and fed to one of the animals. The zoo offers these helpful tips for participating in the program. Step one, get into a relationship. Step two, ruin that relationship. Step three, get revenge. And then step four, donate to the zoo. The basic donation tiers give you the option to send a downloadable Valentine's card letting your ex know a cockroach, rodent, or veggie has been named after them and fed to an animal at the zoo, either anonymously or not. But for a $150 donation, the zoo will make a personalized video of the animal eating the rodent, roach, or veggie. The San Antonio Zoo also notes that last year, the most popular exes' names were Jacob and Sarah. So, sorry to all of the Jacobs and Sarahs out there. If you don't have an ex that you want to name a cockroach after, you can still observe the fun by following the tag Cockroach on social media. And hey, maybe throw a donation the San Antonio Zoo's way anyways for coming up with such a clever concept and executing it so well year after year.
So, the Super Bowl this weekend is going to be one with a lot of firsts. It's the first time there will be two black starting quarterbacks facing off, the Eagles' Jalen Hurts and the Chiefs' Patrick Mahomes. It will also be the first time that two brothers compete against each other in the Super Bowl with Jason and Travis Kelsey. And it could be the first time a player's baby is born in the stands during the game. Okay, probably not, but Eagle center Jason Kelsey, one of the aforementioned brothers, isn't taking any chances. His wife Kylie McDevitt is currently 38 weeks pregnant with their third child, and while traveling isn't exactly advised that late into a pregnancy, she can't miss the big showdown between Jason and his brother, so she's bringing her OBGYN along for the trip and to the game. So not only will there be two Kelseys competing on the field, but the day could end with yet another Kelsey added to the ranks. Again, probably won't happen, but could you just imagine? And speaking of extraordinary birth stories, I feel like in the past I have probably mentioned the documentary Three Identical Strangers. It came out back in 2018, and it's one of those documentaries that is so good, in part because the real-life story is just so fascinating and comes with a lot more twists and turns than you might expect. So I won't say too much about it except for the main premise, which is identical triplets who were separated at birth and unintentionally reunited as young adults. They did the whole talk show circuit back in the 80s, so you might even remember their story from then. Well, the jaw-dropping documentary is now set to become a dramatic TV series, possibly starring Ben Stiller as all three of the triplets. As AV Club points out, Stiller has mostly kept behind the camera in recent years, producing and directing a slew of movies and TV shows, including Severance. So this would be his return to a starring role, or rather, three starring roles. And having seen the documentary, I do think Stiller is a great fit, if they're focusing on the later years of the triplets' lives. I imagine they'd still need to cast a younger actor for when the triplets first discovered each other. And Stiller hasn't even been confirmed yet, he's just in talks with the production company and director Tim Wardle. Could be interesting. And if you've never seen the documentary Three Identical Strangers, I highly recommend it. Looks like it's streaming on Hulu or available to rent on demand. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.